Hello, everyone, and welcome to the State of Sport Management, a podcast with Dr. Matthew Hummel coming from the University of Cincinnati in Cincinnati, Ohio. Here's this week's episode. Welcome, everybody, to join us here for this next episode of State of Sport Management. We had a little bit of a break there. Um, but today we're going to start off and kick off with a kind of a really new topic that's going to be for me. And I think it's kind of a burgeoning topic within our field. But joining us here, our guest is Dr. Yana Kluke from Virginia Commonwealth University. He's an assistant professor and the director of outreach and inclusive excellence in their center of sport leadership. And I believe this is his first year there. So Yannick, how's it going? It's going well. Thank you. Yep. My first year at VCO, go Rams. Happy to be part of the CSI network now and super excited to be here today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I know one of my colleagues and one of my early friends in the field, Carrie LaCrum, who's there. So I, I know you've got some great faculty that you're working with at VCU. She's amazing. Um, another thing before we even get started, I noticed you're from Hamburg, Germany. So yep. like <laughs> how many other Germans, like people, like German natives are in our field? Oh, me and Nina Siegfried, who is a PhD student at the University of Louisville, we are trying to make hashtags German and sport management happen. I think we are the only <laughs> ones using it so far. There's another person, um, Tito Kunkel at Temple, um, who I know is in sport management, but it's starting to take off. I'm starting to recruit more people to join our Germans in US sport management initiative, but that's only one of the things that I do. <laughs> uh, but Nina and I always joke because it does create community and, you know, just being international in sport management in the United States, um, there is a lot of community, which is great. Nice. I know after this podcast recording, I'll have to tell you a story I heard about Hamburg, but there was, it's because I met this one of the first classes I took was at Tennessee when I was working there before I started my PhD program at Louisville. And I had a professor, Lars Chikas, who's. Oh, that's right. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So you may know Lars, but he's not like a sport management person, but he's within this, the general kinesiology, physical education field. But he told me a story about my last name in, in Hamburg, but it's definitely not uh, shareable on podcast. So I'll have to. <laughs> that is so true. I did not make that connection, but you're right. You're right. <laughs> Uh, but all right. So even kicking us off here, you know, I brought up a really interesting topic that I think is something that I'm starting to see more and more, especially within our research. And that's kind of talking about the topic of scholar activism within sport management. So you know, go ahead and kick us off. Let's talk about like, what is scholar activism? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I always try to do is when I talk about scholar activism is I try to distinguish between activist research and then scholar activism. So I want to kind of start by talking about those two separate things that are connected, but not the same. So when we talk about activist research, we really think about research that goes against, you know, dominant hegemonic forces, institutions. It's really this counter hegemonic, you know, research scholarship challenging a lot of the things that we take for granted in sport management and beyond. So it's really this idea that activist research is research that confronts or challenges or critiques hegemonic practices, whether that's epistemologies, paradigms, worldviews, beliefs, um, or any combination of those. Um, activist research is really political in nature, and I'll talk about that a lot today, spoiler alert, um, because it's really serving communities that have been marginalized, systemically excluded, minoritized, and so on. Um, I'm sharing this first term because not all research on activism is actually activist research and not all research on social justice is 
activist research because there is some research on activism and social justice even that doesn't really challenge you know, the systems in place that perpetuate inequality. And I'll be the first one to say that even my research, when I started researching activism, I wouldn't even describe it as, as activist research right now. Um, my research has become a little bit more critical and action-oriented in nature. Um, but for example, my dissertation, I wouldn't qualify as activist research, even though it was on college ethnic activism. Now, scholar activism, on the other hand, which is the topic of today, um, is really used to describe scholars, academics, faculty who take an explicit political standpoint in their work. So these are academics that, you know, use their work, their research, their teaching, their community engagement to address some of the big problems that we face as a society, thinking about systemic injustice, systemic racism, exclusion, you know, any of the social ills that have been very front and center in you know, our public sphere over the past two years, especially um, with the movement for black lives. So scholar activism is really about having an explicit social change agenda. If I had to summarize it, it's about influencing public opinion. It's about influencing policy. It's about actually taking part in specific forms of social activism like protests, grassroots organizing um, and so on. So. When I talk to folks about scholar activism, I always say that, you know, a scholar asks things like, how can I produce knowledge? What knowledge can I produce? And the scholar activist asks, not just how can I produce knowledge, but how can I produce knowledge that eliminates injustice? And perhaps more importantly, how can I translate that research to benefit communities that have been marginalized or minoritized? So scholar activism is really about this fundamental idea that research in itself even if it's activist research is not enough. It needs to be followed by action, by you know, creating change, providing resources to create change. Yeah, like, so you, I mean, actually, I don't wanna to get too far ahead of myself because I definitely gonna have some questions, especially about differentiation there. Like you talked about um, research practice, scholar activism, and kind of how those things would blend together. But before we even get to there, talk about your personal background. Like, can you tell us, how did you get to this topic? Like, what was your pathway to this being an area that's so important to you? And like, how, how was your research informed? Like, how has your research informed your activism? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a couple of factors. Part of it is just being, you know, international in a U.S. system. I identify as a member of the LGBTQ community as queer. So, you know, part of that is just lived experience of feeling outside of the norm that I brought to my research. But even before, you know, I, I recognize that, you know, what I know, know now, I remember sitting in a grad class at um, Bowling Green State University, go Falcons, um, where I was getting my doctorate and my master's. Um, and I remember sitting in a class where we talked about, I think, critical methods. It was like a very critically focused, critical theory focused class. And the professor said, you know, I talked about activism and how I want to be an activist. And the professor called me out on it and said, you know, your job as a researcher is not to be an activist. It is to produce research, to produce knowledge. And that has stuck with me because immediately I kind of rejected that. And I said, if that's the case, then I don't want to be in academia. And it took me a couple of years to, you know, understand and have mentors to show me what it's like to do both, to, you know, be a scholar activist, to produce knowledge that can change the systems that discriminate, that marginalize, that minoritize. But that was a pretty prominent moment in my personal journey as a scholar activist that initially I was taught that you can 
combine those two things that scholarship and activism are mutually um, exclusive exclusive and then for me it was always about having an impact and having an impact not just in the academy but beyond and that's one of the key key features of scholar activism is that you move beyond the academy to the industry to the communities that you are trying to help so immediately i kind of was like mm, nope i disagree and i hope i can show that you can do both um, at the same time i was taking you know i had a great time at bowling green overall i was taking really social justice focused classes and pretty quickly i felt like i love learning about this stuff but how do we put this to action and one of the programs that I created at Bowling Green was called We Are One Team that kind of used sport on campus to talk about social justice and injustice that we have in sport and in sport as a reflection of society. So the program I created there was really about thinking, how can we make sport more just, more inclusive, more diverse, more equitable? Um, and for me, that program started as a passion project on the side to getting a PhD. And I remember specifically a lot of faculty members telling me, don't do that. Focus on your dissertation. Focus on your research. And I said, no, I need I need this form to translate my research into practice. And, you know, two years later, that program had kind of taken over my whole being at Bowling Green. It influenced my research. It inspired my dissertation. It, I was lucky enough to teach a sport and society course where I could do a community engagement component linked to We Are One Team. And that's really the first time where I thought, wow, I can be a scholar activist. I can use the knowledge I produce, I consume to you know, create change. And that really, that program changed the whole trajectory of my career. And you know, I always encourage students to do the same. You know, don't just think about your research, but think about how you can put your research to action, how you can use your research to drive change, systemic change. And this was you know, five, six years ago before this more recent reemergence of activism in athletic departments. So it was really one of the most defining moments of my life. And since then, I've strategically tried to find intersections between my research, my activism, my teaching, my service to do more of that work, you know, to find my voice as a scholar activist, um, to find ways that we can challenge hegemonic forces or so institutional structures that systemically promote inequity or reinforce injustice. Um, and the last thing I'll share before we get to your next question is that really these past two years were pretty formative in my development as a scholar activist. Um, about a year and a half ago, I had the opportunity to um, be appointed to the Team USA Council on Racial and Social Justice, which that was the first time that the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee had created a entity within the US Olympic and Paralympic Movement to look at the ways that their own organization, the USOPC, represented a barrier to racial and social justice. So it was me and then three other um, academic thought leaders being appointed to the council, helping the USOPC think through how they can be more proactive in driving racial and social justice. So for me, that was the perfect expression of what a scholar activist does, to get access to a very powerful institution and then help change that institution to be more inclusive, more just, more equitable. So initially I was appointed to the council to advise the council steering committee on protests and demonstrations um, because one of the things I wanted to tackle was rule 50 and section 2.2, both of which say that you can protest during the Olympic and Paralympic games. So my role was to help the over 40 athletes on the council 
come up with a response to the IOC and IPC to that rule that says you can't protest. Obviously, with everything going on in society, where we see more athletes finding their voice um, and ways to express themselves on racial and social justice. So for me, there was a perfect opportunity to put a lot of the research I've done on activism, on protest, on um, racial and social justice in sport to very specific use. And the recommendation that um, me and my colleague, Scott Brooks at Arizona State, helped write with the, the 40 athletes on the council, Team USA athletes, including people like um, Rayson Bowden and John Carlos, who have been, you know, very big names in sport and social justice. Um, we had a pretty big impact with that. Once we launched that recommendation, the USF, USOPC actually did a 180 on their stance on Rule 50 and said that they would no longer sanction athletes who protest for racial and social justice. So the work that we got to do really helped shape sport history in a little bit. And that's what scholar activists do for me. That is what we should be doing. We should be creating changes in sport that are far reaching, that can make it you know, more possible for athletes to drive social and racial um, justice and social change. You, I mean, and obviously I think that's awesome that you got onto the council. Um working with the Olympics directly, kind of having this conversation with them. That's, that's huge. So congrats to you on that. I think I want to tie in a, yes. <clears throat> a couple things here on this. One is that yeah. we talk about like, why do we need scholar activists? But I think I'm going to tie that into like, we have a point later talking about controversy. It's like, I could see some people being a little uneasy about, let me frame it this way. We're kind of in this cocoon doing research. It's easy to work on a paper, get a study out there and publish it. And then you can kind of point out yep. that, hey, you know, here's some great points that I found and these things need to be put in action. It, it does take heavy lifting to put that research into practice, which is a topic that we're going to get to later in this podcast season. But it can be even more daunting or stressful, whatever, to have a topic like scholar activism that requires you to kind of go to that next step. So, I mean, what would you talk to someone about that that's feeling apprehensive about going into an area like this? Yeah, absolutely. So I agree with you. I actually think that scholar activism is not rewarded in the academy the same way that more traditional forms of research like positivist, post-positive research are rewarded. Our whole you know, tenure and promotion guidelines are usually heavily structured after more traditional forms of, of scholarship. And scholar activism really doesn't get the same recognition in tenure and promotion that quote unquote more traditional work does. And that is a problem, especially for you know junior scholars. I mean, I'm in my third year in my current position, so I'm still a, um, a junior scholar. And for people like us or grad students, it's very, um, you know, challenging sometimes to do this work. And I've been encouraged many times to not do this work. Um, I've had great mentors, great colleagues who've always been supportive, but I've also got messages to not do that because it'll be hard to frame this work in tenure and promotion. And I agree. So there are some, you know, structural barriers in place when it comes to what research do we reward in tenure and promotion? Um, how do we measure impact and in the academy? Um, generally, and in sport management, we usually do that by looking at, you know, journals and impact factor. And if you have, especially at our ones, if you have a specific list of journals that, you know, you reward more than others, it's very hard to do activist work because activist work, um, especially in sport management, it has a harder time getting published in our flagship journals. It's changing, thankfully, um, but it 
you know, by and large, it's still hard to get activist work or social justice um, work published the same way um, as more positivist or post-positivist -positive, work. So I think um, part of the challenge is that we don't value this work as much as we should. And it makes sense because as I mentioned before, it, like this work goes against everything we believe in oftentimes, including the way we measure success or what we define as success or as productivity in research. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing I was gonna say is that, um, you know, earlier I mentioned the story of my professor telling me that scholars are not activists and I know where she, where she was coming from. I know exactly where she was coming from because doing research is an incredibly slow, um, you know, strategy to, to achieve change just because you write something and it can take up to three years to get published. So it just takes very long. And on a personal level, you know, it's exhausting to be doing activism. And there is a long history of research pointing to the fact that you are more likely to be an activist if you hold a minoritized identity and you already, you know, experience certain stressors operating in systems that were not created in your image. So there's a whole bunch of different um, challenges that people bring up when I start talking about scholar activism. Um, you know, but I was, but I would respond to those folks is that we still need them. And that sounds very simple. And, you know, scholar activism means you have to take risks. You have to put things on the line. You have to go up against systems that oftentimes reward, you know, not being an activist. And that is incredibly challenging. Thankfully, in sport management specifically, um, we have started to build a great community of people who want to do activist work, who are scholar activists. Um, and that helps, that helps that those people are starting to get into positions of power, um, kind of rewrite some of the tenure and promotion guidelines, uh, make the space for activist work. But what I will tell folks who challenge um, people like me on activism is, is that we still need activists. We still need scholar activists because we, our academy is fundamentally inequitable. And unless that changes, we will always need scholar activism. And the past two years in sport in general and the Sport Management Academy specifically have shown that, that we do not a good enough joke, uh, sorry, not a good enough um, job at translating our research to practice, specifically when it comes to racial and social justice. And that's why we need scholar activists to you know, identify ways in which we can translate the great research that's being done to inform policy, to inform procedures and practices in the industry and in society and in the communities that we serve. Well, and so that's going to kind of push us to our next topic here, Yannick, of, as I mentioned, this has definitely been a newer topic for me to think about. And you just talked about how certain journals are going to be open to this topic and certain journals aren't. And that becomes a problem when universities or programs, specific programs may elevate certain journals over others. And therefore, it creates a restriction or a flow issue of where you can go. But when I think of this topic, I think of a couple articles that come to mind off the top of my head, and this might lead to exactly talking about how you can apply this. But I think of Grace Yan and Pegararo and Nick Watanabe had a great paper like on student athlete organization of activism at University of Missouri. And that was like from 2018. And it was kind of talking about how University of Missouri football team essentially was going to protest or potentially protest a game until the University of Pres I think it was University of Missouri's president was going to step down. And there was this huge kind of showdown that has occurred there. Because um, I remember at the time, I was even thinking about, like, man, it'd be cool to do an article like that. And we couldn't get things off the ground. Because as you talked about, sometimes when you have a topic or a moment, it's tough to get stuff published right away. Like even Black Lives Matter movement from last summer, like that research might be just coming out now 
because it takes so long to gather all the data yeah. and kind of get that analyzed. But the other one that thinks of also with the JSM, because I use this in my class, is Robert Turek, Anthony Weems, Nick Swim, Trevor Bopp, and John Singer looking at who are we honoring. And it looks at extending, they call it, it's like, who are we honoring extending the Ebony and Ivy discussion to include sport facilities and how we name stuff after that. I mean, do you even think of those as scholar activism and sport management do those hit on those topics or like how can we apply this topic within the field of sport management for research yeah absolutely some of those folks um absolutely i think of as scholar activists and i think they okay. they would agree um fun fact about robert turek he was my roommate my first year at bowling green so uh, hey <laughs> nice heart, they have. <laughs> so all yep it's all connected um no, so some of those folks I definitely think of, of as scholar activists. But the two papers that you referenced, you know, I would qualify, I, I would classify those as definitely, you know, research focused on activism. I think what some of those folks are good at doing is extending that work into practice. So um, one of the authors you mentioned, Anthony Weems, he's part of the Sporting Justice Collective, which is a um, you know a collaborative group that is designed to connect scholars and activists and impact policies. So some of those folks, absolutely. Anne Piguero in Canada, some of the great work she's doing on gender equity with the industry with you know nationwide um, gender equity work, absolutely. So I would definitely qualify some of their work as, as scholar activism. Um, the key is really to you know, take that work that you publish and apply it to the industry, which again, the Sporting Justice Collective, I think does a good, good job at that with some of the work they're doing with the um, anti-racist soccer club and and some of that work so I've actually got to connect with Anthony Beams a couple of weeks ago and um, we had a really conversation so I definitely think um, you know some of those folks qualify as scholar um, activists some other you know folks that I really look up to and that I think of and I can share some specific examples later on as well um, Joseph Cooper at UMass Boston um, has been a, a great mentor of mine and uh, back when he was at UConn, he created a program called Collective Uplift, um, where he, you know, was focusing on students from racially minoritized backgrounds at UConn and helping them, you know, succeed as, as students and collegiate athletes at UConn. And I think that's a great example of scholar act activism. Um, I get to do a lot of work with um, Mary Hobbs and Eli Wolf, Mary Hobbs at Louisville, who has been you know, a trailblazer in disability inclusion who's worked on specific projects like um, looking at principle six of the um, Olympic agenda and adding disability as a, as a group within that principle. Um, her and Eli have also been driving forces in changing the MLB's um, quote unquote disabled list to calling it injured list. So those are really good examples of scholar activism to me. And thankfully I can call most of these folks, my my mentors. Um, I already talked about the Sporting Justice Collective. There's a whole um, bunch of great scholars involved. I mentioned Anthony um, Kwame, Argument from Ohio State. He is on there. John Singer, so some really big you know names in the field. Um, Meg Hancock at, at University of Louisville. I've looked after her work a lot. She does a lot of grassroots organizing, and Louisville obviously is you know has been at the center of a lot of the racial justice um, movements across the country. Um, another couple of folks that I think about, and one of the things I think that sport management can do just a little bit better is to reward interdisciplinary work. Because a lot of, you know, when people think of scholar activism, they usually don't think of sport management right away. They think of like sports sociology. They think of higher ed and part of 
what I'm on my agenda to be is that we change that thinking and think of sport management specifically as um, a discipline, as a you know activist discipline. Um, so one of the papers I'm actually working on right now is articulating an activist paradigm within sport management. Um, but I don't want to you know get ahead of myself there. But some of the folks interdisciplinary I look at are folks like um, my really good friend Tamika Ferguson at VCU who does a lot of great work on black women in sport. Akila Carter Francique at San Jose State University. I think she does really good work. And actually, I think her um, institute, the Institute for the Study of Sport, Society, and Social Change at San Jose State that she directs is a great example of scholar activism and how we can use academic spaces to promote activist agendas through training, education. Um, Joey Cooper and I just did a workshop for one of their conferences um, a couple of weeks ago. So that's a really good, good example of scholar activism, in my opinion. Um, somebody I haven't talked about yet is um, Jules Boykov, who is a really big name in scholar activism. He does a lot of activism with the Olympics, and he's actually run like walking in the streets, um, working with the No Olympics um, movement. So he is a really good, good person to look at as well. And then the last thing, and then I'll turn it back over to you. I really do think that there is a new generation of scholar activists coming. Um, in sport management specifically. So I've had um, you know, the pleasure of working with friends and colleagues like Shannon Jolly, Nina Secret at Louisville, Shannon is at, at Georgia, um, AJ Newton, Wayne Black, Charles McCauley. I think all of us, we are kind of in junior faculty positions or about to be in junior faculty positions. And they inspire me. I mean, they are clearly change makers, trailblazers, they want to change some of those structures that do not reward scholar activism the way they should. So um, I think it's a pretty good time to be doing this work. And I think that this current generation uh, entering the academy is, is going to push for change. Yannick, you hit on something that I've, uh, I'm not going to take us off on a tangent here too long, but I know that there seems to be kind of like coming waves as a topic hits kind of re i don't want to say reality but like the the times and i think this is a great example because the other one i've thought a lot about is esport how esport is this growing field within sport management yeah. and i think that we're probably seeing our very first esport researchers people that i mean people that are focused on that as a research topic and not just kind of dipping their toe into it that we're probably going to see those first couple people out right now that they're probably in one or two years out or they're a phd student and i you brought up a lot of great names there, especially some people that are just about to enter academia or just are, and showing that kind of this is going to be an exploding topic or really growth area that's going to be going on over the next 10, 20 years because we have the right people and the like some of the best minds coming out right now to be able to feed into this area that's essentially almost untouched ground that it's not really being discussed. Yeah, and I will say, you know, while I have full faith in this this new generation of scholars, as you mentioned. Um, I definitely also want to give credit to the folks who have mentored us. You know, like I talked about earlier, for sure. Joseph Cooper, Mary Hums, Scott Brooks. Um, I'll share some other examples of scholar activism where I mentioned some more folks. But um, you know, we we heavily rely on that mentoring because those are the folks who are now in positions of power and who can create some of the platforms for us to be doing this work and not feel like we are you know, not meeting standards for a 10 year promotion. Yeah, for sure. And that's, I'm glad you helped redirect me there <laughs> in a more positive way. <laughs> um, 
kind of thinking now of like, how can like think of this, we're speaking to the audience of how we can help them with this is like, how can scholars establish an activist research agenda? And then like, how can they apply that within the sport management field? Yeah, absolutely. So when we think about, you know, a, a scholar activist research agenda, there is a couple of um, guidelines, criteria um, that I think of. And, um, you know, one of the articles that helped really help me find my voice and think about this more deeply, it's called, but is it activist interpretive criteria for activist scholarship in higher education? And as you can tell from the title, it's a group of higher education scholars um, led by Charles Davis, um, who is at the University of Michigan now. And they really nicely lay out of what it means to do activist research in higher education specifically, which again, as I mentioned, I drew very heavily from fields that are a little bit ahead of sport management when it comes to like social justice and racial justice work, higher education being one of them. So, you know, they say that to be an activist in your research, to do activist scholarship, and again, not exactly the same as scholar activism, but activist scholarship as a tool of scholar activism, you want to make sure that your research is political and explicitly political, which that is already challenging a lot of the notions we have about research in our field that, you know, there's folks that say research should be neutral and objective. Scholar activists say there's no such thing. The knowledge we have is always political. So you want to make sure you look at things like power relations. You want to make sure that you do research where you work with community organizations or marginalized communities. And first of all, ask them what their needs are and then produce knowledge that can help them um, have those needs met. So those are some of the criteria. You want to make sure you challenge the norms that we have in the academy, whether that's in terms of epistemology, in terms of methodology. You know, one of the things that I think we could do more in sport management as well is look at more innovative um, methodologies beyond, you know, the ones that we have used so heavily. So um, thinking about arts-based research, thinking about um, critical discourse analysis, thinking about, um, you know, non-traditional forms of, of inquiry and how those can challenge some of those very norms that we have. Um, and then the last piece that folks kind of want to keep in mind as they develop um, scholar activist agendas is that we want to make sure that our research is intersectional in nature, which I know that has become kind of a buzzword, but a lot of the research, um, you know, using the term intersectionality actually doesn't use it as much as it should be used on the um, way that it should be used. So really looking, you know, beyond the different identities that folks hold to look at how the this different systems of oppression intersect in ways to create specific lived experiences of folks that hold certain identities. So really looking at how do the different systems of oppression that we have intersect, you know, work together to marginalize people. Activist scholarship looks at looks at that, um, very important. And then a couple of ways to, to be, you know, a scholar activist. I know we focused on, on research, but again, the scholar activist piece is asking, you know, not just what research should I do and how can I create change, but also asking how can I translate to broader audiences? I just wanna um, share a couple of, of avenues for scholar activism that might help people putting some of this into action. So um, one of the most, prominent ways to be a scholar activist is to translate your research to broader audiences beyond the academy. So thinking about how can you translate your research to the general public? That can be in the form of public scholarship, like podcasts, op-eds, 
public commentary on news stations, lectures for non-academic audiences. Those are all ways to translate your research to general audiences. One of the things I got to do over the past two years was I worked with the Office of Inclusion at the NCAA because they had, I, I'd worked there before and they knew that activism as a topic was one of my areas of expertise. And they said, hey, we want to do something on activism for our NCAA membership. And I said, well, let's create a resource where we can actually identify some of the biggest barriers to activism for college athletes and provide strategies on how to eliminate those. So, you know, 12 months later, we just earlier this year, we published three different resources that can help college athletes become activists on campus, navigate some of those, you know, systemic barriers that they they face and being impactful in their research. So that's a good way of how I've translated my research personally to like a broader public beyond the academy. Now, it's also pretty rewarding that I know that that, you know, three page info sheet will be read by more people than any of our publications probably. So, you know, that's kind of what you want to do. You want to find ways that you can translate your research to the public so it can benefit the, the populations that, you know, face injustice. Another thing you can do is um, just to call out injustice when it occurs and call it out publicly. So one of the things that I got to do over the summer, me and um, my friend Eli Wolf, who I've mentioned earlier, who's with um, UConn and the Power of Sport Lab, um, we actually, you know, we, we have been doing this work on the U.S. side, thinking about Rule 50 and athlete protests and demonstrations. And one of the things that we knew was that that conversation was kind of tied to the U.S. context. So um, this is actually a funny story about two to three weeks before the opening ceremony of the, um, the Tokyo Games, we sat together and we said, you know, we should put some public pressure on the IOC and IPC because we know we will be seeing protests at the Tokyo Games and we want to make sure that athletes, that we have their back, that they are protected. So within a week, we put together this four-page um, open letter that we started to send to folks to get signed. Um, I remember very specifically because that was my two-week vaca vacation with my family and it wasn't much of a vacation because we like wrote the letter, we um, reached out to our network within 10 days, we had about 150 signatories ranging from scholars like us, from human rights experts, from big names like Harry Edwards, John Carlos, Tommy Smith, um, Gwen Berry, some of the you know figures in activist work in sports signed the letter. So we released the letter the uh, evening before the Olympic opening ceremony. Um, it you know it didn't change the IOC's and IPC's approach, but it was covered widely in the media and, you know, having people like nice. John Carlos and Tommy Smith sign on, it was a huge deal. And I remember, you know, having media from the U.S., from Europe, from other parts of the world reach out and say, hey, you know, what's the purpose of this letter? And that was just one way for us to put publicly put pressure on the IOC and IPC. Um, and we called for them to not sanction athletes uh, if they protest for racial and social justice, which they not ended up doing. Now, I'm not saying that was because of letter. I, you know, I don't want to sound naive. I know there was a whole bunch of different factors, but that's a form of scholar activism to put pressure on these institutions that reinforce inequity and injustice. Um, just a couple more um, ways of how you know scholars who want to do scholar activist work can translate the research. Um, very simple: partnering with activist groups and supporting the needs of those activist groups. 
Um, so looking at in your community, what are some grassroots organizations that do activist work and how can you partner with them? And that can range from actually marching in the streets, fundraising, um, you know, helping with voting initiatives, all that kind of stuff. Um, some scholars create organizations that are aimed at facilitating social justice. I talked about the, you know, the We Are One Team program earlier, which now I would probably correct, characterize as like a baby version of that. Um, but that's a form of, of scholar activism. That's a, definitely a, a form of scholar activism. Um, and then lastly, one of the things that I've also written about, me and Shannon Jolly, I mentioned earlier, and Joseph Cooper, we just published a paper in the European Journal uh, for Sports and Society, where we talked about allyship and moving you know, beyond personal or interpersonal allyship to institutional allyship. So getting access to institutional power and driving change to benefit marginalized communities. Um, that is another way to be a scholar activist, to get access to institutional power and then change policies, change practices, change procedures that serve as barriers to systemic change. I think some of the work that Scott Brooks and I are doing with the USOPC is that, but there's a whole bunch of other scholars who are on advisory boards who you know, get in the weeds of these organizations that can be pretty strong barriers to social justice. So I would say that's another um, thing that folks should start doing, get access to institutional power, whether that's a university or an organization support or you know, a community organization and use that power to drive change. And I think this will work well with, let's talk about barriers. You'd mentioned a little bit earlier about, especially scholar barriers of PNT requirements, journal expectations. Like what are some other barriers that you think that you see that scholar activists are gonna face? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, what you just mentioned, I talked about earlier, that's the biggest one, I think that just structurally this work is not rewarded. Um, and actually oftentimes tenure and promotion guidelines work actively against scholar activist work, just because, you know, we challenge those very structures. Um, I also think, you know, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, that just on a personal level and an emotional level, it's exhausting to do this work. It's exhausting to, you know, navigate those, those structures, which is why it's so, so important to have a strong community and to practice self-care and you, to prioritize your well-being. None of those are things that are usually prioritized in the academy. So, you know, changing the way we view productivity or well-being um, it's going to be crucial for more scholar activism to, to happen. Um, thinking about, you know, another structural barrier, thinking about what do journals publish? Um, I, you know, I've submitted to JSM and SMR before. I think it's changing. Um, I think they're more open to this type of work. But just if you, you know, do a, a brief search of um, activism in those journals, there's not a ton that shows up. And obviously it's going to be changing with the current moment we're at. But I think uh, maybe encouraging journals to more explicitly see how scholar activist work relates to the scope of the journal, that's gonna be important because I think oftentimes, especially journals, not just in sport management, but how's the business or um, you know, some other um, disciplines, they might not see how activist work relates to the scope of the journal, who it relates to things like management or governance or policy, where in reality, all of those things are, you know, the focus of activist work. So maybe being more explicit of how those journals can house scholar activist work will be really important. Um, and then the last barrier I'll, I'll touch on, I touched on this a little bit as well, is part of that is, is a cultural issue. And I'm not talking about cultural in terms of like different, different cultures. I'm talking about cultures we create as a sport management community, as a discipline and thinking about 
what research do we view as rigorous, as valuable? And oftentimes still, um, we tend to view positivist or post-positivist, quote unquote, objective research as more rigorous or more valuable. And we have to justify, you know, even doing, um, sometimes doing critical or qualitative work, you know? So I think changing that narrative and thinking about how scholar activism, scholar activist work, um, you know, activism, a scholarship that promotes activism, that is activism, that studies activism, um, that's just as rigorous as positivist or post-positive research, if not more sometimes. I mean, it's very challenging to do this work. And, you know, I don't want to discredit any, any other work, but I wish we, we would embrace scholar activism a little bit more. And I do think that things are changing and just the feedback I've gotten on my work and friends and colleagues have gotten on their work, it's definitely changing but we still got uh, some ways to go. Well, and I know you mentioned a bunch of great names earlier, but is there any, maybe if it's just like one, two, maybe three articles that you really point out to someone that's trying to learn more about this, like envision yourself, as you said, you had this epiphany in the, your doc class into this area. So yeah. what would be like one, two, three articles that you'd give to someone in the, in that phase of their career that say, hey, if you really want to dive into this or learn more about this, here's some here's some really important work on this. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll share um, two sport management specific, specific ones and then some other um, work that has informed my scholar activism. Um, actually, there have been two Ziegler lectures that focus not specifically on scholar activism, but on, on elements of scholar activism. One of them was done by Jennifer McGarry, um, and it was on creating an impact agenda. Um, and she talks a lot about how our research can have impact specifically with an eye towards social justice. So that is published, you know, that manuscript is, is published in JSM. So I would definitely encourage checking uh, Jennifer McGarry's impact agenda piece out. Um, and I've had the pleasure of working with, with Jennifer McGarry, Dr. McGarry for um, a project over the, the past year and she's amazing. <laughs> so definitely check her work out. Um, the other one is on is by Wendy Frisbee on critical sport management research. And one of the things we haven't talked about right now as much is, you know, and one of the unspoken assumptions of scholar activism is, is that it's critical in nature. And that is true. Like that's a very foundational um, element of scholar activism is that you operate somewhere in the critical paradigm. So uh, we don't do enough of critical research in sport management. It has changed again over the past 20 years as more, um, but I would check out her Ziegler lecture, which I think is called critical sport management research. Um, that is at least in the title. So those two, um, I would definitely check out. Now, Note how both of those are Ziegler lectures. So I wish we had more, you know, um, articles on these topics published in JSM or SMR or some of other other flagship journals. So hopefully some of the folks listening, um, you know, want to join me and some of the other folks I have I have mentioned in producing their work. But those would be two works I would um, check out. Not specific articles, but scholars to check out. Definitely Joseph Cooper. I've talked about him a ton. Um, Kwame Eigenbang, I've talked about him at Ohio State, great work, does um, you know, a lot of the work he's doing outside of um, his research on foreign parties research is great scholar activism. I talked about Mary Hams and Eli Wolf, so checking out some of their work in the disability space. And then non-sport management wise, definitely check out the work of Jules Boykoff. He has written extensively on scholar activism in the Olympic and Paralympic movement. 
Um, I mentioned the piece from Charles Davis that's called, and, and his colleagues called, but is it activist, talking about the interpretive criteria for activist scholarships. So um, I would encourage folks to check that one out. And then lastly, one of the things actually I just reread um, a couple of weeks ago is from a scholar at Rutgers Camden, and his name is Oscar, Ho Oscar Holmes um, the fourth, and he talks about diversity scholars specifically, and him, his piece is, is titled, I love this title, it's titled, For Diversity Scholars Who Have Considered Activism and Scholarship Isn't Enough. And as I mentioned before, that's one of the key tenets of scholar activism is that research is important, but it is not enough. It, research alone won't save us. We need to turn that research into activism and find ways to inform policy um, to create change. And not to toot my own horn here, but going back to something you mentioned about Dr. McGarry, we did a, there's a podcast episode for anyone that wants the shortened version or also to read her Ziegler lecture paper that's, uh, that's published annually in journal sport management. We also did an episode where we dedicated to talk, at least I think the first half talking about her Ziegler speech, because as you hit, I think it was awesome. actually probably maybe one of the most discussed Ziegler speeches that I can recall. Um, I can think of one or two others that really stick out, but I do think it caught a lot of people's attention. And it's, yeah, like it's one of those things that I remember people openly yeah. discussing at the conference. So that's awesome. Yeah. And that does not surprise me, but I love hearing that because it was such a good, you know, piece thinking about what impact can we have and how do we define impact? And, you know, is our work impactful when it comes to social justice? Just looking at research, you know, just looking at a few journals, it just won't cut it. And I think we've talked quite a bit about research, I think it was good that you were talking about we want to connect us with teaching. So like, how can we tie in scholar activism within our teaching roles? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, one of the things that folks can do to implement this into teaching more is, um, well, first of all, you know, think about how we teach things like impact or productivity or even research output, you know. Um, especially for grad students, think about how what we teach grad students when it comes to impact and productivity. Um, more specifically, I always try to partner with organizations in the community who do the work. So thinking about how can we, you know, help those organizations meet their needs, whether that's, you know, a local Black Lives Matter chapter or a group on campus that, you know, as part of the movement for Black Lives or the Me Too movement or you know, other, other social movements, I think partnering with those community partners is going to be crucial and helping them achieve their goals. Most of these organizations do not have a ton of resources to, to do the work. So um, as teachers, the more we help them, the better. Now, the bad news is, is that that type of work does cause more work and you have to do your homework. You can't just go in and say, hey, this is, I'm Yannick, I'm a scholar activist. Here's how I'm going to help you. You know, you have to um, <laughs> listen to them. You have to get a sense of what their needs are and see if what you do, what you teach, um, the class you teach can help them get there somewhere, some way. Um, and, you know, I think that's a great way to put scholar activism into the context of teaching and pedagogy to think about how can we partner with community organizations who are committed to, you know, eliminating barriers to social justice, advocating for historically excluded minoritized, marginalized populations 
and making that a big part of the of the class. I think that's a great way to to implement some of the the notions of scholar activism into teaching. Um, and then the other piece is, you know, maybe have an assignment that takes an important research article that talks about racial justice, social justice, activist work, and have students find creative ways to translate that to a broader audience. You know, I want to make sure that when we talk about scholar activism, this is not just about my work. Like I've talked about a bunch of other scholars who've been very impactful. And I've had an assignment in my class before where I had students identify scholarly articles that they feel like make a contribution to social justice and translate that to an audience of their choice. So they have taken um, articles and turned them into programming for high school athletes or something like that. So, uh, you know, I would say find ways that you can um, create assignments where they translate research into action, into praxis, whether that's through a podcast, multimedia projects, you know, art, but whatever it is. Um, those are some ways I think that we can in integrate the, the research and the teaching component of scholar activism. And now as we kind of tied in the teaching research, let's think about big picture stuff like assessing impacts. I definitely think of yearly evaluation forms or whether that's third year review or even for P&T, you have to essentially, a lot of people have to create this narrative essentially defining how they've been impactful as a junior faculty member. Like how would you assess that? Let's say you are having to evaluate yeah. how these people are doing in the field within this area. Like, how would you assess their success? Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, this is my first year in the Center for Sport Leadership at VCU. So I've just been, you know, on a round of interviews on the job market last year. And it's so funny. So I, I consider myself a pretty productive scholar, traditionally, you know, looking at like my publications, all that kind of stuff. In all the interviews I did, and I interviewed at uh, I wanted to go to an R1 level. So I only interviewed at, at research universities. The conversations I've had with like deans or people high up very, you know, shortly talked about research and then talked about, tell me what you did with the USOPC. Tell me what you're doing with the NCAA. Tell me about the work you're doing as the, on the Council for Asian Social Justice with Team USA. You know, so I think kind of shifting the mentality to assessing impact just through citations, which again, I don't want to discredit that. I think that's an incredibly important um, aspect of you know, assessing the impact of scholarship, but thinking about how do we assess impact beyond citations. And as I mentioned before, like when I think back of like my legacy as a scholar in you know, 20, 30 years from now, I will probably have some papers I'll be thinking about, but I will always remember what I felt when the USOPC announced that they are changing their stance on Rule 50 and are allowing athletes to protest for racial and social justice. Like that is something that no scholarly paper of mine could have achieved. That was something that me and the other scholars on the council had to do the work you know, on the ground to make sure that happens. So um, I wish we, we would change our um, notions of impact beyond just the citation numbers to so think about how is that research used? How are those citations, that knowledge that is being created, how is that used in the industry, in the communities that we serve? Um, I think that's how we can impact, that's how we can assess impact for scholar activism more if we think about not just um, what is the research that's being produced, how many times is it cited, but also what specific impact does it have beyond the academy? I think that's kind of an interesting way to think of it because I do think 
having a more holistic look is probably good for all of us, but I think it's especially going to be important for a research area just like this. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the other thing I was going to say too, is that if we think about impact, you know, I think we have a lot of sport management scholars who do some really good work um, with the industry who do, you know, public facing work, who do podcasts. Like we have some great podcasts in not just sport management, but like in sport, you know, like the Burn It All Down podcast, the End of Sport podcast. That's really important public intellectual work that I don't think, you know, it's valued as much in our promotion and, and impact statements. But I think it's incredibly important because those are tools that we can use to translate some of that, that important um, research, you know, doing things like, uh, I haven't talked about these two examples yet, but if we think about scholar activism, thinking about the great work that Richard Lapchick does at the University of Central Florida and Tides, the generation report cards, that to me is a form of scholar activism, you know, collecting data, translating that to broader audiences and making recommendations of how we can fix some of the barriers to, to progress. I think they're doing great work. Um, Nefertiti Walker at uh, UMass, some of the work she has been spearheading with the um, Wasserman Collective, you know, bringing together academics and industry experts to drive gender equity. You know, I wish you would change our uh, tenure and promotion guidelines to reward that work, you know, to create those collaborations, those coalitions to drive change. So I think that is one thing that has to happen to think about as sport management gets more and more innovative, especially in the social justice space and thinking about how can we drive that change, um, our tenure and promotion documents have to have to reflect that. No, oh, that's awesome. Yannick, mean, you're, you're name dropping lots of big time people in here. I love it. Um, <laughs> yeah, we have some good people in our field. Sure. <laughs> yes. Um, so our last question to kind of finish this up is we're going to switch. I like to ask these fun podcast questions at the end, but You've kind of teased some work that you're doing right now. So I think it'd be important for me to hit on this, but tell me about one project that you have in the works right now, either that's under review or you're collecting data or you're analyzing data or you're just getting off the ground. It, it's anything that you consider in progress. Like give us a little tease on something that you're really excited about that you're working on right now that hopefully will be published or somehow promoted in the future. Yeah, awesome. Um... You, you made the number one mistake asking an academic to pick one project. <laughs> no, just kidding. Yeah, yeah, um, just, just one. <laughs> just one, yeah. Nope. Oh, that's tough. Um, well, I already talked about the, the activist paradigm one, so I won't pick that one. Um, I would probably say, so one of the things that, one of the studies I'm actually wrapping up is on activism. <laughs> very, very fitting. But one of the things that I found in my research is that a lot of the research on activism focuses on minoritized communities and rightfully so because minoritized folks like black athletes, queer athletes, women have been at the forefront of many social and racial justice movements. So rightfully so. But one of the projects I'm doing right now with a, again, an interdisciplinary research team is looking at white college athletes specifically and how white college athletes have promoted racial justice as part of the most recent waves of the movement for black lives. So thinking about how those with you know, privileged identities when it comes to race, white people, um, promote racial justice and can promote racial justice and can become accomplices, allies, um, you know, change makers in, in that space. Because no social movement can be successful 
without the buy-in of those holding power, those holding privilege. So right now I'm, uh, we, you know, I just actually just sent out this paper for review. So we're looking at, you know, things like white racial consciousness and how that informs activism for racial justice. So I would say that's probably, I'm, that's a project I'm really excited about and I can't wait to, to be out there in the world. Awesome. I'm glad it just went out. So if any, any reviewers are listening in, you know, be kind, have an open mind to this paper. That's what matters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but and that was tough. I, I have another project to go. I was going to talk about, but that was that was tough. <laughs> hey, I guess maybe I shouldn't call these fun podcast questions. Sometimes they are no answer no, wrong, but can fun. be tough podcast <laughs> questions. <laughs> yeah. I love well, it. well, Yannick, thanks for joining us on this topic. I think this is great. Um, I'm looking forward to kind of getting this out there and seeing some of the conversations that might spur on social media from this. So. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. No problem, man. You know, if anybody out there wants to connect, my DM is always open. My email is always open. Happy to continue building the community so we can have more scholar activism and sport management. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks everybody for joining us here for this episode of State of Sport Management. This will probably be posted right here at the end of 2021. So we want to wish everyone a happy new year and hopefully 2022 will provide the positivity that maybe we all need or some positive things that are happening. So enjoy it. Hopefully everyone can enjoy the end here and the fall semester is over. And then we will kick off and get ready for the spring semester.